Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here on my own today. I hope that won't be too disappointing. This is one of our microdose episodes where we like to focus in on a specific theme that we've covered in a recent main episode, what we like to call the trips. And our most recent trip was on the subject of protest, and we thought we couldn't let go the chance to talk about protest music in a little bit more detail. Music, after all, is all about the expression of feelings, sentiments, vibes, what we like to call in the trade, affect. And because of its incredible power to affect us physically and emotionally, music is an obvious vehicle for the expression of any kind of feeling, including the mixture of feelings of hope, anger, joy, fear and longing, which all come together to make the experience and the emotional repertoire of all the things we might call protest. Now, I tried to do this in the way that we did one of our previous microdose episodes on the history of folk music with a fairly exhaustive historical look at different ideas and manifestations of protest in music and music culture going back historically up to the present and I realised it was going to take like four hours and while we would love to put together a whole little mini series on the subject we don't really have the capacity to do that right now so instead this is going to be pretty arbitrary it is basically going to be me picking out 15 tracks from 1969 up until 2023 that all have some sort of protest or explicitly political theme arguably and talking about them now the thing we're really not going to cover there is the sort of protest music tradition meaning basically folk music with political lyrics because we did talk about that quite a lot or rather I did on the microdose episode on folk music from a couple of years ago the history of what we might call protest music in some general sense is very old you can trace it back really to lyrics we still have in historical documents from the early 16th century. If you're interested in learning a little bit about that history, I would recommend having a look at a couple of academic archive websites that are very easy for anyone, academic, non-academic, to have a look at and browse. Really fascinating stuff. One of them belongs to a research project based at the University of East Anglia called Our Subversive Voice. And that is an archive of the lyrics of English protest songs going back centuries. And the other is the University of California Santa Barbara's English Broadside Ballads archive. A broadside ballad is, is an old term for, to all intents and purposes, a protest song. And that also features lots of recordings of people singing these songs. So really interesting stuff. Uh, have a look at that if you want to learn a bit more about the early history of this idea. Before I get into the meat of the episode, let me remind you that you can get even weirder and even leftier by subscribing to our newsletter. We have an email newsletter. It only goes out about once a month, once a month has lots of extra stuff in it, bonus content and updates from the ACFM crew. Just go to novara.media slash ACFM newsletter. 
Uh, conversely, if you want more music and less chat, you can follow the ever-expanding ACFM playlist on Spotify. And our specialist music microdose episodes actually get their own playlists. So all the tracks on that folk music microdose are in a dedicated Spotify playlist, the ACFM folk music playlist. And the tracks I'm going to play today, if you want to hear them all in full, you want to play along while you're listening to the podcast and listen to the full tracks, then you can probably do that on the Spotify playlist, which we will put together for this episode. At the same time, uh, do keep in mind that if you like the show, which is quite a lot of work, and we don't get that much <laughs> pay for it, then please leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. And keep in mind that, you know, we're not actually asking for a, your opinion of the show. We're asking you to help us duke the stats, to work within the, the rules of the algorithm game, to get them before they get us. Come on, it's easy to do on any any platform you're listening to us on. And do keep in mind that you can also listen to the show on SoundCloud and what you can get on SoundCloud is sometimes a much fuller version of our audio experience because the copyright limits affecting the kind of archive sound we can use and playing music tracks are much less onerous than on downloadable podcasts. So do check out ACFM on SoundCloud sometime. Uh, finally, if you possibly can and you don't already, please do consider supporting our host, Navara Media. It's so important right now that alternative and progressive media get the support they need. Uh, we are really bad still in this country at giving support to this kind of project, something I, I might moan about later on this show in a particular context. You can support Navara for as little as £1 a month by going to navara.media slash support. Now, okay, let's get on with the show. What's the first track I'm going to play? I'm going to play Marlena Shaw, Woman of the Ghetto, from 1969. Let's hear a bit of it. Now, how do you legislate? Brother, listen to me. Marlena Shaw's a jazz and soul singer, and this is from I think her, I think her first LP, and it really is a remarkable record that absolutely stands up today. The production on it is fantastic. Uh, the lyrics are extraordinary. We will be talking quite a lot about lyrics today, which is ironic because in my academic career as somebody who's written about and theorised music I have been one of the people always championing the idea that really the politics of music resides in its sounds more than its words but it's interesting to think about lyrics sometimes so a lot of what we will be thinking about today is lyrics although I'm trying to select tracks which all I think have some really interesting sonic in qualities and this one definitely does really extraordinary piece of music but the lyric and the lyric is phenomenal a song directly addressing itself to as the lyric puts it legislators appealing for some consideration of the status and condition of poor people in the ghettos especially women and children absolutely a, a 
an expression of what we might today call an intersectional politics long before that term was coined really and a fantastic dance floor record that still absolutely kills every time I play it or anyone else does I think really fantastic I really don't know I mean why this record should be less well known than any other record from the 1960s well we know why because it's done by a black woman and not by a white guy from Surbiton but um that's not a good situation it's one that we should seek constantly to overcome so fantastic of course all that raises some interesting questions about what we even mean by protest in music and as we said on the show there's a very unstable distinction to be drawn between protest politics and revolutionary politics or subversive politics and when we're talking about protest music well it's really it's very interesting to think about whether protest music even really exists as a, as a distinctive category at all in the whole field of post 1960s popular music because on the one hand well, on the one hand, there was, there was this very specific genre of what people call protest music, which is basically folk music with explicitly political lyrics. And that still exists today. You get people like the British singer Grace Petrie still doing that kind of work uh, very eloquently. On the other hand, it's worth reflecting that, in a certain sense, the, the dominant theme of popular music from the early to mid-60s onwards, at least for several decades... Uh, the two dominant themes really are romantic love on the one hand or other forms of youthful complaint about the condition of society. You know, whether it's Bob Dylan in his late 60s songs no longer being explicitly political but still moaning and moaning about the general sort of shallowness and uh, awfulness of people in contemporary society, whether it's Mick Jagger whining about how he can't get any satisfaction in 1965 whether it's the Smiths, you know, with their kind of pained elegies to the passing of whatever it is that they are actually mourning the passing of in the early 80s. Uh, I don't think they were at all clear themselves what it was, although one might have some suggestions to make. Whether you can also think of all that as basically different kinds of protest music, I think is worth reflecting on and I think maybe you can make that case and I think you can make a case that really that is the case up until sometime in the 90s at which point within rock and pop the lack of faith young people have in the whole idea of democratic politics or a shared culture means that a lot of that energy goes out of the music whereas in certain strands of music particularly hip-hop and other kinds of rap uh, the idea of music as a vehicle for political expression uh, retains a degree of strength and potency. Um, but I think it's very hard to generalise about all these things. And I'm not going to try to give a kind of coherent historical account or a, histor or a, co or a coherent theory of protest and music. Uh, I am here on in just going to play some interesting records all English language records and records that have sort of political themes, explicitly political themes, whether or not we can really call them protest records or not. So what will be the next one I'm going to play? Well, the next track I want us to hear is one that very much, actually very much derives from that tradition of protest music, capital P, capital M, people strumming guitars, singing songs of social protest. 
but it's a cover of one of those songs. There's a whole musical industry, really, a whole genre, if you like, of Bob Dylan cover versions. And this is one of the most unusual and one of the most extraordinary, I think. This is Iggy and the Stooges doing their cover of The Ballad of Hollis Brown in Ballad of Hollis Brown is one of Dylan's darkest protest songs. It is a song telling the story of a very poor family. And I, I think the story is that the guy shoots himself and his family because they're basically starving. So it is a description of a condition of abject oppression and poverty, which must be understood as a, a protest against the conditions producing it. The, this particular track, Iggy and the Stooges, arguably the key proto-punk band originating from Detroit at just the same time that Black Sabbath were also developing a kind of heavy rock out of the experience of living in post-industrial Birmingham. The Stooges on this track, they really anticipate in many ways what would become key sonic uh, features of goth rock in the early 80s this kind of picking arpeggiated guitar sound this very dark sound and this very dark lyric overall of course all that is offset by this very jaunty sort of organ playing which sounds more like Jonathan Richman and the Modern Lovers producing overall a very haunting very interesting effect uh, and a really uh, extraordinary piece of music from the following year 1974 this is one of my absolute favourite explicitly political reggae tunes. A lot of reggae can be heard as sort of protest music, but it is also quite clearly music which is intended to inspire its audience to engage in some form of collective social struggle. Whether reggae music is usually actually protesting in the sense of pointing to an injustice which the listener can be expected to agree is an injustice uh, and which some figure of authority might be expected to do something about, or whether it is more like a kind of revolutionary music appealing to its listeners to uh, work together to overthrow the existing order. I mean, that is all debatable. But this is a, an interesting example of a reggae song, classic reggae tune, which is has a very explicit, specific socio-political theme, but really loses none of its uh, power or, or humour in the process. And of course, this is an incredibly contemporary theme even though this record is from 1974 uh, this is a record i've been playing a lot when djing recently for fairly obvious reasons this is max romeo rent crisis my landlord is a cruel man a man that no one can understand every time the rent near with you that is the time when my landlord screw and when him collect him smile again that's the only time me and him Friendship only lasts for three weeks, as three weeks time, the rent you again. So, a song about the uh, excessive rent and the depredations of landlords from 1974, uh, Kingston, Jamaica. 
are absolutely relevant in the London of 2023 and in almost every town and city now in the developed world. Uh, fantastic, a fantastic little anthem. I love that. Okay, well, if we're going to talk about protest music or political music of any kind in the 1970s, well, we can't avoid, of course, talking about punk rock. Of course, the actual politics of punk is always very complicated, quite ambivalent, often contradictory. Punk always had a highly reactionary dimension to it, with its idea of going back to some imagined sort of primitive form of rock and roll, moving away from the avant-gardism of bands like Pink Floyd and the other progressive rock acts. On the other hand, it always had also an incredibly democratic dimension and it opened up a whole field of musical possibilities during the so-called post-punk era. Punk really, I think, was a sort of what Raymond Williams would call a structure of feeling, a pattern of emotional and affective responses to the world, which could take on quite different specific political forms and connotations. I think it's always worth reflecting, for example, that the Sex Pistols song, Anarchy in the UK, the great punk anthem. I mean, if you actually listen to the lyrics, the lyrics are not, as is often assumed, an evocation of anarchist politics. The lyrics are mocking political extremism, as it sees it, basically. It's, they're mocking groups like the Angry Brigade, basically. And the same album that that song appears on, uh, never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols, includes an, an anti-abortion anthem called Bodies. On the other hand, on songs like God Save the Queen, the Pistols gave voice to the sense of anger, which was growing amongst young people as it became apparent that the terms of the, the post-war settlement were being torn up by those with the power to do so. And that the future, which had been offered to the boomers, was not going to be offered to anyone else. So punk can go in all kinds of different directions. But I think one of the greatest, I would say maybe the greatest British, and maybe I'm not sure if British is even the right term actually, explicitly political punk rock anthem to my mind, is this record by a band from Belfast in Northern Ireland. This is Stiff Little Fingers, Alternative Ulster, from 1978. Let's hear a bit of that. Fantastic lyrics on that record. They say they're a part of you. That's not true, you know. They say they've got control of you. That's a lie, you know, etc. Really, uh, and a call to arms to the audience to build the kind of world that they want to see, like in the face of prejudice, bigotry, oppression, the state forces, and capitalism. Uh, really inspiring stuff. Uh, musically, a kind of genius, actually. The the use of open chords and that famous it, um, opening few bars of that record is still just uh, really uh, inspiring and slightly haunting as well. Truly remarkable piece of music. I, I still love that record. It's one of the few pure punk rock records I still think is quite danceable. 
the next record I thought we would play is one which uh, was a big chart hit at the time. It will be familiar to many people, but it has a definite contemporary resonance today uh, for fairly obvious reasons. And also it's a little bit been in the news, or at least the music industry news, uh, in recent years. This is Elvis Costello and the Attractions from 1979. Oliver's army. Don't start the talking. I could talk all night. My mind was sleepwalking while I'm putting the world to right. Call careers information. Have you got yourself an occupation? Now, this song, Oliver's Army, I mean, it's often quite obscure to people what it's about, even though you can definitely get a sense just from the tone of the lyrics and the, the passion in the melody, you get a sense of what it's about. Well, it's specifically a, a, a reflection on the growth of the kind of mercenary, private security, straight military industry, which Costello was already reading about at that time in 19... 79. Of course, that has now become a key feature of, of global military affairs. So it was a very prescient thing to be thinking about even then. The phrase Oliver's army, according to Elvis Costello, is actually a reference to Oliver Cromwell and the fact that within in Ireland, and Elvis Costello, I think his parents are from Ireland, in Ireland to this day, Oliver Cromwell, the uh, one of the uh, leaders of the English Revolution against the monarchy in the 1640s and 1650s is remembered as this sort of hate figure because the uh, Protestant army led by Cromwell did terrible damage to people in sort of subjugating Ireland and you know, imposing a, a, a much more severe colonial regime on it than had been in place already in the 1640s, 1650s. So the idea of the the colonial army uh, coming and really wrecking people's lives is bound up with the figure of Oliver Cromwell in the Irish historical imaginary. And it's this idea which the song is about. But the song is also about the way in which poor working class English guys are themselves like thoroughly exploited by the deployment in these various post-colonial or just neo-colonial, neo-imperialist arenas. The song refers to boys from the Mersey and the Thames and the Time being deployed in Palestine and in Johannesburg. Uh, the song's been newsworthy recently because it does contain a line that contains the N-word. I'm not going to say on the show, so I don't want to offend anyone. That led to some people criticising Elvis Costello on the grounds that no person, or at least no white person, should ever say that word in any artistic context, to the point where I, I believe he has now withdrawn the song from his any of his live sets going forward. I would have to say, I do think I think that's kind of a shame because the use of the N-word in the song is fantastically powerful. That the actual line, the notorious line is all it takes is one itchy trigger, one more widow, one dead white N-word. And yeah, the point being made there is, is, the, is the, the fact that the class position 
of the soldiers who are losing their lives in these mercenary neo-imperialist conflicts makes them effectively, you know, puts them effectively in the same position as black people in a way that ought to, you know, it ought, it ought to provoke solidarity. Maybe it would if they had the opportunity to express it. So it's a, it's a very powerful line, very powerful image, uh, extraordinary piece of music, and also notable, of course, for the fact that this very sombre lyric uh, is offset by this incredibly upbeat, sort of disco, ABBA-influenced uh, backing track, you know, music, and the tune and the use of the pianos in particular make it a sort of dance floor pop tune. Really extraordinary piece of music and uh, a really interesting synthesis of different elements that sadly retains a great deal of relevance today, decades after it was first, first released, as does the next record I'm going to talk about. Another British uh, political record from a couple of years later, four years later, 1983. So I'm going to play a Pink Floyd track. Now, Pink Floyd are a fascinating British musical institution and no element of their story is more fascinating than that of the story of their lead singer for most of their career as a band, although he's been a solo artist for decades now, Roger Waters. Roger Waters is the guy who wrote most of the songs up until the mid-70s and then from about 77 from 77 to 83 he, he wrote all of the songs to the point where the rest of the band were getting sort of fed up with being the backing band for what seemed to have become a sort of Roger Waters solo project so from 77 to 83 Waters writes basically several albums worth of material and then as a solo artist he carries on doing so into the 80s and afterwards and typically these records contain, they typically they are concept albums. In, in other words, they have a linked theme and sometimes an actual story linking the songs together. And they deal with these very complex political, social themes. Perhaps in some ways, the most extraordinary example from our contemporary vantage point is Waters's solo album from the mid-80s, Radio K-A-O-S, which I'm not saying is like a fantastic record musically. I mean, it does what it does, which is a very distinctive kind of white rock with a heavy emphasis on the lyrics. But the, what it does with that form is it tells this story about a kid in a wheelchair who hears radio waves in his head, who can, who can act as a kind of radio and TV receiver. And the whole song dramatises the emergence of a world in which human subjectivity is being remade by the globalisation of network communications. And this is before the internet. This is before social media. It's really sort of extraordinary. And similarly, the album, which the song I'm about to play appears on, uh, is, a really, is, a, is a really incredible sort of musical essay on British politics and culture at the time when it comes out, 1983. The album is Pink Floyd, The Final Cut, subtitled A Requiem for the Post-War Dream. And the theme of the album is precisely the sense that the consequences of Thatcherism are the ending of the post-war dream of a stable, secure society characterised by relative social equality, relative peace and security for most people, of a kind which most most human beings through most of human civilization, history of human civilization, have not really known. 
it is a really extraordinary theme and the record does manage to evoke it quite well and it's very ahead of its time i mean really a, a few of leading edge political commentators around this time on the left as waters is had really grasped the, the the consequences the historic consequences of the end of the post-war settlement people like Stuart hall and eric hobsbawm but lots of people still hadn't you know people like tony ben definitely hadn't got the message that 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 it was over basically uh, whereas waters as anguished as he is by that recognition realizes that and you know sings about it what's also kind of extraordinary is painful they come out of the london counterculture of the late 60s and within that that current really the attitude of most singers and lyricists to post-war british culture was just utterly condescending you can think about the kinks you know and the ray davis's endless songs about how awful people in the suburbs were and how much implicitly how much cooler he is than them you can think indeed about Mick Jagger whining about how he can't get no satisfaction despite being, I think, about 25 in 1965, which is like the single luckiest age to have been in the whole of human history forever. And it's interesting to note that a theme of popular musical protest throughout that period and up until the late 70s, really, a persistent theme is just people complaining about being bored, about life being boring, from the Stooges to the adverts. And there are many other examples. There are lots of songs where people are basically complaining that life on, under late Fordist capitalism is too boring. The, the whole point of this record is to really reflect on the fact that, well, what might seem boring to a privileged young people growing up in the 60s and 70s was actually, you know, a, a sense of security, which many generations of working people had struggled for up until World War II, and which the people who fought World War II saw themselves as having fought for. And it was really something to be mourned if it was going, not something the passing of which should be celebrated. I think maybe the most moving uh, song giving voice to that sentiment on the album is this one. This is The Gunner's Dream. Goodbye, Max. Goodbye, Mom. After the service, when you're walking slowly to the car, and the silver in her hair shines in the cold November air, you hear the tolling bell and touch the silk in your lapel. As the teardrops rise to meet the comfort of the band. So on The Gunner's Dream, Waters imagines, I mean, the scene, the, the song, I think, does deserve, the lyric deserves quite careful parsing. So a gunner, somebody on a fighter plane, evacuates, you know, ejects from uh, a plane during the war. And as they uh, eject, they dream, they imagine, they think about what kind of a society they hope they're going to live in after the war. And the, the scene then shifts to what seems to be a Remembrance Day service, a, few, a, a service remembering fallen soldiers on Remembrance Day, which is still something that happens every November in the UK. And there is this reference to the fact that the gunner's dream, the dream is of a world in which... People have a place to live, enough to eat. Somewhere old heroes shuffle safely down the street. 
somewhere where everybody has recourse to the law and no one kills the children anymore. Very sort of moving stuff, very percep politically perceptive and fairly typical of Waters. Because Roger Waters, <clears throat> he is this fascinating figure. He's hugely popular, more so, I think, in places like Spain and Brazil and the States and in Britain. But he's still really, he still packs out stadiums in, in, in Britain as well when he has this very devoted following for very understandable reasons. Because if you're a certain kind of person, especially but not exclusively a certain kind of white man who really sees white rock as your organic cultural form, then he's the guy who has used white rock as a cultural form to really give voice to highly sophisticated, you know, anti-capitalist, democratic critiques of contemporary capitalism and its political, cultural and social forms. Waters is also an incredibly wealthy guy. You know, the Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon was for many, many years the best-selling record in the world at a time when that meant you had sold a lot of records. Both as a touring band and as, a, as you know, through selling albums, Pink Floyd have made huge amounts of money. He hasn't been a member of Pink Floyd for decades, but he owns the publishing rights on most of the songs. So both as a solo artist and as a former member of Pink Floyd, the guy has made millions and millions and millions. In recent years, he's had a bit of public attention because the, the political cause in the past few years with which he's the most obviously associated is Palestine solidarity. And he was one of the public figures just a year ago who was subject to a wave of attacks by pro-Israelis and commentators, pro-Israel commentators and lobbyists. Of course, one wonders, you know, whether he, you know, anybody's going to be pilloried for supporting the Palestinian cause to the same extent after what's happened in Gaza over the past few months. But it's extraordinary, given all that, that he, he doesn't have any sort of presence at all in British public life. And to the best of my knowledge, none of his hundreds of millions of dollars have ever been donated to leftist or radical causes, at least in Britain. I think he gives a lot of money to causes in Palestine. But... I mean, this is a real problem for the left in Britain, that it's just not normal to have to function the way in which we do. In countries like the, even the United States, it's just normal that you've got at least a handful of like really, really rich people who support the radical left. I mean, I've said this before, but projects like Navarra Media and The World Transformed... If they were, if they're happening in the states or in most European countries, like some rich left wing millionaire would have given them like a big chunk of money by now at some point, and this just doesn't happen in this country, and it doesn't happen because even the people you would expect to be our like rich left wing people, like Waters, just don't seem to be interested in actually supporting anything. So Roger, if you're out there, come on, man, put your hand in your pocket, give Navarra some money. Yeah, Waters himself has done a great work of kind of public political education for his audience through his albums over the years. But come on, some of us are struggling out here, man. Anyway, <laughs> moving on from that, I'm going to play a record from the following year, from 1984. Can we call this a protest record? I think we certainly can. It, or it was certainly understood as such at the time when it was released, although it was also much more than a protest record. It was a, a song about liberation, self-emancipation, but also about the things from which people, certain people have to try to emancipate themselves. 
This is Bronski Beat, Small Town Boy. Bronski Beat, legendary British uh, synth duo, uh, one of the exponents from the golden age of British synth pop, uh, the singer, the national treasure, Jimmy Somerville, Scottish, uh, gay leftist icon. The other group he formed was called The Communards, which I've always thought was one of the greatest left-wing names for a band. And Bronski Beat, really, really important band. One thing to note about them is that at this time, uh, say from sort of 81 to 84, the British charts and to some extent also the American charts are full of these groups, many of whom originate socially to some extent in the London gay club scene. And even if they don't, then their music owes quite a lot to that scene. We're talking about Soft Cell, the Pet Shop Boys, Depeche Mode, uh, Culture Club. Even in the case of Culture Club, Boy George, although he was widely referred to as a gender bender and he was understood to be a queer figure in some sense, the sort of public mythology about Boy George was that he was simply asexual. As for the rest of the, those figures, people like Neil Tennant, people like Mark Almond, um, today, queer icons all, they, it, their sexuality was not talked about much. It, it, figures like them, even like Morrissey, they were understood to be sort of transgressing some traditional masculine norms, but they weren't clearly recognised by their teenage audiences as gay, for the most part. This was not true of Jimmy Somerville and Bronski Beat. Their first album was called Age of Consent, with a very clear political message, because at that time, the age of consent for gay men was still five years older than that for straight people. And the album had on the cover the pink triangle, the gay liberation symbol of the time. Now, this song is, in some ways, quite sad, a poetic uh, reflection on the experience of growing up as growing up gay in a small town, although... Those exact that exact phrase is never used, but it's pretty clear what the meaning is. Of course, it's a song because it's not very it's not explicitly about being gay. And pretty much anyone who might have grown up lonely and frustrated in a small town can directly identify with. And the soaring sound of the chorus, although the lyrics remain you know, quite sad, the soaring sound of the chorus clearly evokes that feeling of escape which so many people, especially queer people, especially queer people in the 70s and 80s, were experiencing, well, say this, let's say the 70s in particular, people were experiencing as they left like, conservative provincial areas and went to live in the more cosmopolitan cities. This is a classic narrative of gay self-emancipation at, at that time. The record itself is just tremendously important historically, along with Giorgio Moroder's production of, on Donna Summer's I Feel Love, 
it's this record really which is one of the key templates for all subsequent trance music like trance in all of its forms i think almost all owes some kind of a debt to this exact record honestly even though very few trance records have ever come close to the soul searing intensity and authenticity of this particular record small town boy it's still to this day an absolute dance floor banger and I really think it might have a claim to be the greatest British pop record ever made, uh, possibly. I do like making those sorts of claims if only to provoke people. Uh, small Town Boy, really extraordinary stuff. And I'm going to play another record from 1984. My, the big list of records I made that I could have talked about on this show that would have taken four hours to go through all the way. The big list actually has more records from 1984 than any other year. And it is worth reflecting. The 1984, 85, 86, it does represent a sort of peak. It rep 84, I think, is a sort of peak for global single sales or at least single sales in states in america it's the period when michael jackson's thriller being released which i guess is 83 is this kind of huge public event it is the period when pop music seems to occupy this status as a sort of shared culture which is participated in by you know, millions of people especially young people and so it's understandable while pop music has this status as sort of the public sphere for lots of people, people who have some sort of political point to make might try to make it in that arena. And people working in that arena might feel some sort of responsibility sometimes to make political points. Maybe no better example of that, a more explicit example of that, can be found than this, often forgotten these days, but absolutely fascinating record. This is Grandmaster Flash and Many Mel Jesse. Hypocrites and Uncle Toms are talking trash. Let's talk about Jesse. Liberty and justice are a thing of the past. Let's talk about Jesse. They want a stronger nation at any cost. Let's talk about Jesse. Even if it means that everything will soon be lost. There we go. Extraordinary record. And yes, in case you're wondering, that is a campaign song for Jesse Jackson's campaign to get the Democratic nomination for the presidency in 1984. It's a record which definitely does include strong protest elements, very direct critiques of Reagan and Reaganism and the consequences thereof, as well as to some extent its militarism and nationalism. But the chorus of the song, the chorus is vote, vote, everybody get out and vote. Well, actually, I don't know if is that the chorus. There are several choruses actually. The the arrangement of the record, as is quite normal on these early hip hop records, is doesn't follow a standard A B chorus structure. It's very interesting, and it's really fascinating to think. Jesse Jackson was not. He did not become the Democratic nominee. Walter Mondale did. So this wasn't during the presidential campaign. So this must have been a record for the primary campaign to try to get Jesse Jackson the Democratic nomination. So you've got. Grandmaster Flash and Melly Mel, probably the most famous hip-hop artists of their moment, the first big stars of hip-hop ever, doing a record explicitly calling on people to go out and participate in a primary campaign. 
it really makes you wonder like if uh, so if if hip hop stars had done more to advocate for participation in the democratic primaries in 2020 would uh, would bernie have uh, finally got the nomination uh, the answer is no but it's uh, still interesting to think about yeah it is interesting to reflect upon the place of the jesse jackson campaigns to get the democratic nomination in american radical history so in both 1984 and 1988 Jesse Jackson, a hero of the civil rights movement and a leader of black radicalism in the United States, tries to get the Democratic nomination for the presidential elections and is unsuccessful in both cases. Most commentators think he came closest to being successful in 1988, but the first campaign is in 1984. The phrase rainbow coalition, which first starts to be used in the early 70s, acquires its widest circulation and popularity during this period. Jesse Jackson calls his campaign for the nomination in 84 a rainbow coalition. The idea of the rainbow coalition is that all these different social groups, gay people, black people, young workers, will be brought together in a broad coalition for a radical democratic, social democratic programme of reform to push back against Reaganism and restore and extend the legacy of the New Deal and the Great Society. Uh, in 1988, in particular, Jackson gets arguably pretty close to getting the nomination, and I think he maybe could have won the presidency against the completely charismaless Vice President George H.W. Bush. But instead, the Democratic establishment, which is consolidating around uh, an increasingly neoliberal agenda, makes sure that he doesn't get it. Instead, the nomination goes to the equally charismaless Michael Dukakis, who proceeds to lose. Uh, one of very few uh, candidates from an opposition party to to have lost after a president that you know a party has had the presidency for two full terms already uh, in recent decades. I would say a couple of things about the Jesse Jackson campaign and its place in our recollections of American radical history in the past few decades. One is that I, I thought a lot of the commentary coming out of the American millennial left, if you like, the Jacobins and the podcasts during the Bernie years uh, was just seemed to be completely ignoring the precedent of the Jesse Jackson campaigns. I mean, people kept going on about Eugene Debs, the socialist candidate um, in the early 20th century, who got something like 4%. And as far as I could tell, that's just because Debs called himself a socialist and Bernie called himself a socialist. The times being what they were, Jackson would not call himself explicitly a socialist. But his programme was probably no less radical than that of Bernie Sanders. And the historic implications of him winning would have been no less significant, I think. And the campaign, I think, is also very significant because really the defeat, the suppression of his his bid for the Democratic nomination in 1988... I think really does mark a sort of historical endpoint for almost a century of black radicalism in the United States. Rather, it, it represents a historic defeat, which is more or less equivalent in importance to the defeat of the miners in Britain in 1984 to 85. That it's within a few years of that defeat, you've got the Clinton administration imposing draconian legislation on black populations to massively increase the prison population, for example. And you've also got, frankly, 
hip hop music by the early 90s, abandoning its political vocation in most instances for a more or less enthusiastic embrace of a certain version of neoliberal subjectivity in the idolisation of the idea of the gangster. And I think the Jesse Jackson campaign itself occupies an important place in that history. And it is really fascinating to know that during that first campaign in 84, the key stars of hip-hop at the time made this record explicitly advocating and encouraging people to go and vote for him in the Democratic primaries, if only enough of them had done for him to have won. Okay, we'll come back to hip-hop and the early 90s in a moment, but I thought before that we would play the also historically fascinating uh, record midnight oils beds are burning from 1987 we should hear a bit of that at least a bit of the chorus So Midnight Oil are this Australian rock band and this record was released in 1987 and it it is an appeal for Indigenous rights. Uh, the record is singing, you know, is, is, is saying that the Aboriginal people in Australia should be, you know, have their land rights restored and, and uh, should have some kind of reparations paid to them for the century of mistreatment at the hands of the colonisers, really. And... I, the the record became this international hit. It went to number one in places like uh, Canada and South Africa, where its anti-colonial message had a certain resonance with large audiences. But it charted highly in the States, I think got to number six in the UK. I remember seeing it on sort of chart television and thinking, this was sort of extraordinary. I'm not sure that everybody buying the record understood what it was about. I remember being told, I might be misremembering this, and but I don't think 87 is too early for this. I think I remember being told by a friend that they thought the record was about uh, pollution and <laughs> we wouldn't have used the phrase climate change at the time. But uh, interesting, the, the, the chorus lyric, how can we sleep when our beds are burning? That would be a fantastic metaphor for uh, people being apathetic about climate change. But actually, the record was about indigenous rights in Australia. Uh, either way, it's a very rousing chorus and it's a very interesting example of soft rock as a political vehicle, which is something fairly typical of this moment, the post-Band-Aid band -Aid moment in English-language rock music. you got people like John Cougar Mellencamp producing what are clearly sort of protest records in a, a pretty soft rock idiom in the late 80s, in a way which is historically quite unusual. On the other hand, if you are looking for music, which becomes a vehicle for explicit both political protest and the expression of radical revolutionary sentiments in the late 80s and early 90s, then the first place you are going to look is hip-hop. This was the so-called golden age of hip-hop. We could play many examples 
we played Public Enemy on the show. We could play early NWA. We could play Tribe Called Quest, play Arrested Development. There's a lot to be said about the politics of hip-hop at this time and the reasons for the collapse, really, of the, the whole idea of hip-hop which had crystallised at the end of the 80s as a hyper-articulate, experimental form whose soundscapes revolved around sampling and whose lyrics revolved around explicit political and social themes. I don't really have time to get into all that now, except to say, well... I mean, a couple of things happened. One, there was a series of Supreme Court cases which basically made it economically impossible for people to make records in the way that groups like Public Enemy had done, using loads and loads of samples, because the Supreme Court decided to take an incredibly punitive and restrictive attitude to sampling. So basically, if you were going to use like one second of someone's music, you had to give them publishing royalties, which is just economically unviable. And the other thing that happened was indeed the, the defeat of black radicalism, the feet of the Jesse Jackson campaign and then the fact that the 1992 uprisings against uh, police violence in Los Angeles did not as some people hoped ultimately result in a revival of black radicalism and then the Clinton presidency which would have been completely impossible without mass support from black voters who mostly liked Bill Clinton then resulted in a regime which saw the end of welfare, the implementation of workfare policies and the implementation of this incredible carceral regime, which saw so many young black men sent to prison. And this really did represent an absolute betrayal of black citizens by the Democratic Party establishment at that time. All of that produces a situation where really by the time Dr. Dre releases The Chronic and in the years subsequently the version of hip-hop which becomes most appealing to most people is one which is apolitical, even anti-political, which really aestheticizes the experience of a sort of post-political hopelessness and advocates for a sort of hyper-individualistic response to the social conditions people find themselves living under. But perhaps... That's not to say there are all, there are not always people, people like, for example, Boots Riley's group The Coup, producing explicitly political rap and hip-hop throughout that time and into the 2000s, and we'll hear a bit of that in a bit. But one of the records which I think now stands out as marking the sort of end of that great period, about 86 to 92 really, a great period of rap radicalism is this. This is the disposable heroes of hypocrisy with their classic rap track, Television, the Drug of the Nation. Apathetic, therapeutic, and extremely addictive. The methadone metronome, pumping out 150 channels 24 hours a day. You can flip through all of them, and still there's nothing worth watching. TV is a reason why less than 10% of our nation reads books daily. Why most people think Central America means Kansas. Socialism means un-American and apartheid is a new headache remedy. Yeah, I've always wondered about that record. The, the, I mean, the record seems to be a kind of explicit, almost an explicit rewrite and re-recording of Gil Scott Heron's the revolution will not be televised. The theme's very similar, but even the intonation and delivery are quite similar. Never been clear how deliberate that was. Michael Ferranti, the rapper on the key figure in The Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy, very interesting San Francisco-based black intellectual artist. I very recommend seeking out the work of his 
former group before that, this group called the Beatniks. Really fascinating stuff. And this record, a very direct, I mean, protest against and critique of television culture. It's worth wearing in mind one of the features, both of music culture and culture more broadly, at this particular moment in history, pre-internet, was that this is really the golden age of broadcast television as the dominant cultural medium. I remember I wrote an essay for a book about Michael Jackson that was edited by Mark Fisher many years ago. I remember making the point in there that you know, Michael Jackson became this sort of hyper-real, postmodern, unreal figure, partly because he was the first global pop star to be so thoroughly um, bound up with the medium of television and even television advertising and music videos. And music television at that time, I mean, not just music television, television generally, it was at the height of its global power as a medium. And of course, as a medium, it's a completely one-way medium. You need loads of money to make and broadcast TV. It's, TV involves a signal being broadcast from a central point all around the world. And this is pre-internet. And really, internet culture is ultimately going to change all that. We're going to we're in a very we live now in, in a media ecology which is very, very different because of the fact that everybody can make videos and distribute them basically but at the time television did seem like this super capitalist monolith and this uh, critique of it uh, seemed very powerful despite the fact that um, the american hip-hop uh, in the mid-90s would come to be dominated by the figure of the gangster the idea of rap as the natural vehicle for social protest and political commentary persisted both in america and elsewhere and this next record i'm going to play is a great british example from 1995 this is a group i think we've played before on the show but we haven't played this record this is the lead track from their first album this is jericho by the asian dub foundation Asian Dub Foundation, extraordinary musical project. They came out of this organisation called Community Music, which was a local authority funded, a municipally funded music project for young people. I think it may have been a, a, a legacy project of Ken Livingston's Greater London Council from the early 80s. Um, really produced this incredible music that was a kind of synthesis of South Asian popular musics like Bangra with hip-hop, with dub and reggae, very self-consciously hybrid, very self-consciously radical, with a fantastically articulate rap style that owed more to uh, dance or chatting than American rapping. And this is a great example, which definitely includes protest elements. People there includes protesting against you know, police brutality and violence, but also includes a strong assertion of a radical political identity for the consciousness of the nation. This is the Asian Dub Foundation. You say you're multicultural? Well, we're anti-racist. Uh, a very hot topic at the time as multiculturalism became a sort of official ideology of advancing cosmopolitan capitalism. 
the need to assert anti-racism as a specific political position distinct from multiculturalism uh, was, as I say, a hot issue at the time. This remains a really evocative expression of a kind of cosmopolitan intersectional radicalism. Uh, a really great record. And this is from 1995. This is only one example of the way in which British music in the mid-90s was characterised by this extraordinary cultural hybridity. You had, you had Tricky and Massive Attack and Portishead doing this trip-hop thing coming out of Bristol. You had Drum and Bass and Jungle coming out of London and Birmingham. This really was an extraordinary moment for this sort of radical cosmopolitanism in British music culture. And that is the reason why... Britpop, which explicitly celebrated the, an idea of British musical identity wholly dependent on a lineage of white male guitar bands, was a totally reactionary project. I'm sorry, if you don't understand that, then you don't understand what was going on in, in British political culture and, and culture more broadly in at the time in the 1990s. I know there's these cohorts of people a few years younger than me now who were like kids at the time and they thought Oasis were really exciting because they sort of evoked some vague sense of working class community. Well, you can see where the politics of Oasis have ended up. Thank you. And anyone who really understood what was going on in broader British music culture at the time could have told you that was where it was going. There is simply no excuse whatsoever for remembering Britpop as anything other than a totally reactionary project. Why? Because what was the other things that were happening in British music culture to which Britpop was reacting? It was stuff like this, the Asian Dub Foundation. Still active to this day, absolutely fantastic artists. Uh, they ought to be much more widely recognised as, as national treasures, really. All right, Moving towards the end of the 90s, I want to play a track by a band. Again, I think we might have played on the show recently, but not this track. This is Le Tigre from their first album. Now, Le Tigre are a band fronted by Kathleen Hanna, who I think is the most interesting figure to have emerged from the short-lived Riot Girl scene of the early 90s. Riot Girl was a sort of was very interesting for being an explicitly feminist alternative rock scene. Uh, it was less interesting for the actual music it produced for the most part and the extent to which a lot of that music was sonically dependent upon grunge. Um, there's, a whole dis there's a whole conversation to be had about the way in which punk evolves into kind of alternative rock of the 1980s with people like the Smiths, R.E.M., Husker Du, then evolves into grunge and the way in which it really just loses any sense of a vocation which might involve poli public political commentary and instead becomes a music which is about giving voice to a sense of angst, a sense of existential longing and loss, but without any explicit political content at all. Does that represent protest? Maybe it does represent protest, but protest at its most completely ineffectual. Uh, Riot Girl was a bit different. Riot Girl did have an explicit political agenda in its open and, as I say, very explicit feminism, and it, that was fantastic. Uh, I, I think probably the most interesting of the Riot Girl bands were Kathleen Hanna's group Bikini Kill, and then Kathleen Hanna formed this band later in the decade, in the late 90s, Le Tigre. And Le Tigre, really, really compelling 
synthesis of sort of punk, some elements of pop, some elements of sort of proto-punk garage sound, and some elements of electronic dance music and synth pop, all being put together in a really, really fun and exciting way. This record is one of the most memorable from their first album. This is La Tigre, My Metro Car. The Metro card, I think, is just like the equivalent of an Oyster card in London, although we didn't get until years later. It's just a card that lets you go around using the subway and the public um, transit network. And the record is partly just a kind of, you know, a, an enthusiastic celebration of life in New York, which I guess was probably easier for poor people in 1999 than it is now, just as was the case in London. Although it didn't feel that way. I got to say, I always feel like I have to remind younger people. By 1999, like loads of my friends were already moving Lon out of London because they couldn't afford it anymore. That, and that really started at the, around, at the end of the 80s, if you were poor enough. Anyway, it does also include the lines, these anti-Giuliani shout and lines like workfare doesn't work. That are So clearly it is also a kind of protest record and an exuberant expression of political sentiment, as a lot of their records were. Uh, fantastic stuff. Fantastic band. Motivated by, I think, similar feminist commitments. The next record I want to play is from 2002. And this is Ms. Dynamite. It takes more. Miss Dynamite comes out of the garage and R&B scene in London in the early 2000s and she produced this first album which was full of these fantastically articulate songs like like most of them like this one doing a kind of garage inflected R&B uh, with very sophisticated lyrics and this song is it a protest song well I think it is it's but it's not a protest song necessarily against government policy or what have you but against the forms of culture which seem to have become normative within black youth culture at the time the song is explicitly saying uh, as a as an intelligent young woman i'm not interested in re in relationships with wannabe gangsters it takes more to impress a girl like me i like to be challenged mentally she says really inspiring stuff at the time uh, one of several great records she made the general understanding of what happened to Miss Dynamite's career is that she tried to become a hip-hop artist so that she could break America and was one of many people to try to do that out of Britain and didn't really succeed. I don't know whether that's a fair assessment or not. And it'll be interesting to see what, how that story continues in the next couple of years, given that I think Little Sims is probably, I would say, probably the best British rapper that we've ever had. Whether that will be enough to impress the Americans, don't know. So certainly people like Stormzy have managed to sell records in America in the past few years. We'll see what happens with that. 
but Ms. Dynamite, I would say you could classify this as a protest record. Even if not, it is a work of social commentary, which is powerful and inspiring and a really interesting uh, manifestation of feminist consciousness at a moment when public feminist consciousness in popular culture was quite hard to identify outside of very specific areas. Uh, but of course, you know, Le Tigre were doing it. And if you were looking at America at, that, at this time, this is... You know, Missy Elliott was doing stuff, similar stuff. Now, the penultimate record I'm going to talk about today is also an explicitly feminist song. In fact, it is called Feminist Song. And this was a record that was just released last year, 2023. This is Feminist Song by Gina Birch. I think this is Gina Birch's first solo album that this comes from, that was released in 23. She's now in her late 60s. Gina Birch, for those who do not know, was one of the members of the great British feminist post-punk band, The Raincoats. But we're not playing The Raincoats today. We are playing Gina Birch's solo record, or a track from it, Feminist Song. Uh, this is a really interesting record album that Gina Birch made. I, I realised that I, when I was recording this, I kept saying record all the time, like um, somebody from the 1950s. It probably is because I buy so much actual vinyl. Uh, Gina Birch's album, I Play My Bass Loud, really interesting mixture of styles and production techniques, bits of rock, bits of quite a lot of dub, uh, in its way, an exemplary manifestation of post-punk stylings in 2023. Uh, really worth listening to and really worth supporting. It's great that she's out there doing that still. Now, the final record I wanted to play today, though, we've gone slightly out of chronological order because the final record I wanted to play is the one that I really wanted to close on. This is a record from 2015. Uh, this is a record by... Boots Riley's group, The Coup. This comes out in 2015, two years after the start of the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests. Now, The Coup have been making politically conscious and radical hip-hop since the early 90s, so you can't say that really BLM has somehow provoked it or created it. Nonetheless, this is a great example, I think, of a record coming in the wake of the upsurge of radical energy that BLM has provoked and expressed. Now, I wanted to close on this record partly because it's just a great tune, partly because it, of all the records I'm playing today, this is one that is really explicitly not a protest record. If we accept that protest sort of implies some sense that maybe the injustices being described and referred to might be subject to some form of redress without radical revolutionary upheaval, then this is not a protest record at all. This is a record, the lyrics of which explicitly evoke a revolutionary scene wherein uh, the forces of authority are being confronted by revolutionary power. Let's, um, one of my favourite verses from this fantastic lyric is, uh, they got the TV, we got the truth. They own the judges, but we got the proof. We got hella people, they got helicopters, they got the bombs, and we got the, we got the, we got the, 
we got the guillotine. The guillotine, the instrument by which the re French revolutionaries executed their class enemies, is evoked here uh, as something which revolutionaries might use in the future. We got the guillotine, you better run. We got the guillotine, we got the guillotine, you better run. That's the chorus. Uh, it is really a very fun and inspiring piece of music and a good example of what music, which is definitely politically radical, but no longer has any time for protest, might sound like. This is, by the coup, The Guillotine. They own the judges and we got the proof. We got hella people, they got helicopters, they got the bombs, and we got the, we got the, we got the guillotine. We got the guillotine.